World Cup podcast. We're 48 hours away from the start of the Rugby World Cup final. I'm here with Christy Doran, rugby editor of the raw.com.au. And I'm here with Julian Linden, who's News Corp's rugby correspondent, general sports writer, uh, veteran, good bloke, and veteran who uh, has been at quite a few of these. I think last time we spoke, we established he's been at nine of these Rugby World Cup finals. Uh, this will be the ninth, yes. This will be the ninth. Well, it's been a a massive week. So, so much news. We've just had the team news. Wednesday, I spent all day trying to track down a ticket for Paris Saint-Germain playing against Milan in the Champions League. I discovered that there were no tickets in the whole of the town. You could not get your hands on a ticket. What do you guys get up to? Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm telling, I'm, I tell him. Yeah. <laughs> you, you deliver the bad news. Yeah, funny how things work out. Is, uh, <laughs> we were we were uh, just having a quiet beer uh, overlooking the Eiffel Tower at the Australian uh. Embassy, as you do in our in our uh, in our caper. And uh, suddenly, Christy, who's got uh, more connections than anyone in France, uh, gets a text message saying, "Got three tickets to the game." Three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. All right. Oh, look, we had a good time. It was a great atmosphere and and it was a, a lovely function there. I know that Hamish McLennan and his uh, colleagues have come under a fair bit of fire for remaining in France, but there's been a lot that's happened over the last week and that includes the World Rugby Council's decision to vote through things like the Nations Championship Cup, the, uh, the, the fortnight delay to the 2027 World Cup. There's many reasons why they would have been here at this time. Phil Wall back on the plane. We'll get to some of those in a, in a short time. But this will be the hottest ticket in town this weekend in Paris, the, the World Cup final, two of the great rivalries coming together. And- I can't get one to that either. Actually, no, that's that's a lie. I do have a ticket to this game on the weekend. So I will see you guys there. We'll come back to the World Council and Hamish's uh, tough work schedule a bit later. First, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, this week we will have instant reactions with Harry and Brett post the uh, third and fourth playoff for the two or three people out there who might be interested in that (laughs) game. And for the thousands who will be tuning in for the World Cup final, they'll be back uh, with an instant reaction straight after that game. Then Christy and myself will be up 24 hours later for a bit of a recap of the tournament, uh, a run-through of what was said in the aftermath of that, and we'll, we'll really go into some depth about that. But as I mentioned before, there's been heaps of news today. Uh, both teams in the final have named their squads. South Africa, being South Africa, have gone big, ballsy, bold. They've gone with 7-1 on the bench, seven forwards, one back. How big a risk is this? Well, um, it's an obvious risk if they have a problem with their halves. So um, I don't know if I'm, I'm trumping you on that, but they've, they've changed their halves and gone back to the halves combination from 2019, um, Faf and... and uh, and Andre, if they and look, they've proven they've done it before. But you go in with a risk. If one of those blokes get injured, okay, then you're potentially going to have to reshuffle around. And I think they're looking at it as a Colby coming yeah, off the Colby, going in a, going in a half. I mean, World Cups are traditionally have always been won by teams with a really good halves pairing, okay. But you've also got to have a good backup half. So there's a real risk when you go go into this. We saw it with the Wallabies earlier this season, okay. Okay, you have an injury in the back line against Argentina, whole thing just goes kaput. Big risk. I get what uh, what they're doing with the seven one, and if everything goes according to plan, then it'll it'll probably work out pretty well for them. But footy doesn't always go to plan. Blokes get injured. It's a ticking time bomb, in my opinion. At, at some point in time, it's going to blow up in the madman of Rassi Rasmus' face, and and it could decide a World Cup final. I, I think it's an extraordinary move, and it, and it wouldn't surprise me. Dan McKellar wouldn't want this, but. And Andre Pollard has had a lot of injuries over the last 24 months. For you to put all your faith in him that he'll come through, and I know that they're great legs and pins, whatever you want to describe them as, but wow. And I, there's, there's simply not a, a person. Fafta Clerk would move into the 10 position if there was an injury, but that means that you'd be putting in Cheslin Colby, who doesn't play at nine. There, there's, there are huge questions over, over this decision. And, and more to the point as well, why do you want to take off like an Ebenezer Beth after 45 minutes to bring on a? Uh, I know that a, a RG Steinman's superb, but I just don't know why you'd want to remove one of the best second rollers of the generation. It's not just about injury risk either, is it? It's about these guys having to play 80 minutes 
a week after going to one point against England, a week after going one point against France. So the stress and the pressure and where, you know, seven weeks into a, eight weekends into a tournament, it's not as if it was against New Zealand when they tried this before the tournament and they had breathing space and they were coming in off, off a bit of a spell. Like this is the pressure moment. It's a good point, but Elizabeth was replaced after 45 minutes only a week ago. It's not like he's had to go through 85 minutes of slogging it out in trench warfare. So oh, it's a big call, but it's so out of the Razzy Erasmus playbook. Uh, fair play to him. Good it's not a surprise, is it? No. I mean, this is kind of, you can see this happening. But I, I agree with you, big risks there. It reminds me almost a little bit of like when Checker couldn't work out when to, who to start and who to finish because there's big dynamics change when you when you when you change your your starting halves to your finishing halves. Okay, and for me the game is you know they, these are the two guys that will ultimately the forwards because they've got so many good forwards the forwards will probably cancel each other out. I think the game will be run in the halves. Okay, and uh, Pollard's kicking will be decisive. If South Africa going to win, they're going to win it off his boot. Okay, so but they played them off the bench last week. The dynamic of having them start. Completely changing it for a final. I just uh, think it's a big risk. So you talked about the halves there. Richie Moanga, there were reports in New Zealand apparently that he might not mm. be fit enough for, for this game. They've ruled that out uh, quite strongly this afternoon. Christy, you were at the New Zealand team naming, uh, and now the, the team naming press conference. Uh, where, did, where have they kind of settled with their side? You're right. He was pretty emphatic, Ian Foster, by saying that uh, that he'll be good to go. He said that he was interested to, to read that. But Fozzie was in quite a lighthearted sort of mood um, tonight. He, he cracked a couple of jokes a few weeks ago and he's cracked a few more tonight. And, and, and I enjoyed it. It was quite refreshing to see a coach who seemed um, that, you know, he was asked, are you at peace with where you're at? Uh, into a World Cup final, and his response was was rather hilarious. Where he said, "Am I at peace?" Or maybe I wouldn't go that far, but, but it's a wonderful word. He's a guy that's led this side to the World Cup final, and and they've had a pretty good run from injuries, haven't they? They haven't really missed anyone throughout the tournament. They had a couple going into it, you know. Missed him came for the first game, but after that, everything else has been been good, right? Correct. Yeah. Jules, how would you be feeling if you were Ian Foster right now? Like, it's a bit of a dog act what they've done to him in some ways. Uh, yeah, well, I wrote earlier in the year that I think they engineered the uh, the almost impossible uh, scenario of uh, of a lose lose. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you by by jumping the gun early, you you either face the prospect of having a guy who takes you and wins a World Cup, and then saying hasta la vista at the moment the game is finished, or you you stick with a guy who wasn't and, and and named his replacement in advance. Well, why didn't you name him in the first place? You know, so I, I think it's really yeah. I, I think it's going to it's like Fozzie will come out of it really well, so he, he'll land up somewhere else. But I I think they they didn't think it through as as well as they should. I, I suspect there was a little bit of panic because they were they were concerned where Scott Robertson might go. Mm. Obviously, one of the places that he potentially could have gone would have been the Wallabies um, because. You know, there was already talking about what was going to happen with Dave Rennie. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think um, they've, been, they've managed to kind of sweep it under the carpet a little bit this week, but it makes for some very awkward uh, welcome home parades, doesn't it? How much do we think that he's running this team and it's not uh, Jason Ryan and Joe Schmidt? There's been talk also, obviously, on the Springbok side about the impact of Rassi uh, as opposed to Nainaba as well. Like, do you think... This is Fozzie's team, or is that that selling him short in a way? Oh, it's Fozzie's team. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And the players are lack behind him too. And I think we saw that a year ago when they came out and beat South Africa. I think it was 35-23 in, in Johannesburg. If, if they wanted a new coach, they could have rolled over. Losing over in South Africa, mm. most teams do it. They paid for their coach that night. And and I think they played for them for him ever since. The way that they started the rugby championship, I know that they got demolished by South Africa with 13 or 14 guys at Twickenham, but no one's playing for the Qatar Cup, are they? You know, they, they played for the rugby championship and they were so clinical out of the blocks in the first 20 minutes of all those three games. So, yeah, they're behind him. Jason Ryan's done a superb job with the with the uh, detail around the set piece, around the rolling moor. Joe Schmidt, too, was a master of that with Ireland. What we've seen with New Zealand, 
is exactly what needs to be taking place with Australia, where you get a melting pot of great ideas, people with supreme rugby intellect, and that's been completely absent of the Wallabies, <laughs> and we won't talk about them much further about it. But it's chalk and cheese comparing what New Zealand and their approach has been over the last 18 months to what RA has done. For me, I think it's not just Fozzie's team. I actually see this as also being Steve Hansen's team. I see this also being Graham Henry's team. It's one of the things that worries me about New Zealand and making this decision to get rid of him. When, when they hit rock bottom, was in 2007. It was the first time ever, first, only time ever that the All Blacks didn't make the semi-finals. They got, they got dudded by uh, forward pass in that quarterfinal. Who, who was the referee and, uh, that time? The same, same bloke who <laughs> got the whistle on the weekend, right? Okay. Wayne now, Miles. traditionally up, and they were about to host the next World Cup like the Wallabies are. And they, they were in a position where they'd always gone through, whenever they, they, they choked at World Cups, they, don't forget, they went 24 years between winning World Cups after winning the first one, and they were favourites every single time, right? Lost it every single time. Anyway, they had a moment where they just took a deep breath, okay, and Graham Henry convinced them to just say, look, let's not sack everyone every time something goes wrong. So what we've learned from 2007, we'll take through to 2011. We need to start building a long-term succession plan with their coaches, not just their players. So they put that in place in 2007 off the back of a low moment. Won it in 2011. Henry stepped down. He'd already brought Hanson through the system. Hanson came in, won in 15, carried through to 19. Fozzie came through the system with them as well. And it was a continuation of all of that. So for me, I just see this as more of being part of that, or part of the ongoing structure that has been so successful for New Zealand after 24 years of duck eggs, right, and potentially winning three out of four. So it's a real question mark about why you would go and, you know, the old saying, if it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It looked broke, though, to be fair, at one point in time. And that's why they, of course, acted on it. But what... I take a little while ago, but he's won four. You know, he's won he's won last four rugby championships. Oh, completely agree. What will be fascinating going forward is there's a generational change of players, and it was COVID too. Like a lot of those results happening in COVID, so I think there has to be a little question mark about them. There'll be no Dane Coles going forward. He's been left out of the side for for this weekend. Uh, Ian Foster said it was the hardest conversation of his coaching career, leaving out a 36 year old who, of course, won the World Cup in, in 2015. Aaron Smith, his last match. Uh, Brody attack for Salem Whitelock, heading overseas offshore too. Retallick starts ahead of Whitelock, so another change there to the second row. It, it'll be fascinating with a, a new coach, obviously with new plans, but he's two guys that have done everything for him at the Crusaders in, in Richie Mwanga and Sam Whitelock are both heading offshore. So it'll be really fascinating to see whether or not Razor Robertson can actually continue on the trend of where New Zealand's out at the moment. So Fozzie revealed today that his next job is going home and mowing his lawns. <laughs> um, after that, though. Mine too. Yours too? <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Your job or, your, or yeah. he's going to do your lawns? No, I'm going to do mine. Don't yeah. cut it to show the grass, boys. I've been gone two months, so my lawn's going to look like a jungle. <laughs> so beyond that, what's, what, do you, what does his future hold, do you think? Oh, I think... I think he'll probably take a breather and, and someone else may have mentioned that today, but he, he, he said he wants to continue coaching. So I, I would think that would be in Japan. I can't see him wanting to take up another international coaching, head coaching role. Uh, he's clearly not going to just become an assistant underneath Eddie Jones next year. That, that, that won't happen. But Japan is where all the coaches are ending up at the moment. Dave Rennie's ended up there. We know that Jamie Joseph's come back, but he was up there. Uh, Franz Ledecky, who's uh, really linked to this Brave Blossoms head coaching role at the moment, Jake White. All the coaches end up in, in Japan at the moment because, let's be honest, you're coaching for a matter of months rather than it being a, a year-round job. It's a soft landing, and it's also it's not a dead end. So people, get, when people go there, they can... You know, they can come back and still coach internationally. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't see any real incentive for him to jump straight into another international coaching job. And, I mean, how many would even appeal to him after you've won a World Cup? I mean, really very, very few. So unless he's going to get a really high-paying gig with, say, England, you know, he's not going to South Africa, the Wallabies potentially down the track. But I don't know. And What's his incentive to coach the Wallabies? Like, well, right exactly. And, and, you know, Robbie Deans has ended up there and is, he's not necessarily the head coach at Panasonic, but I can see him doing a, a Steve Hansen, who's the director of rugby up at uh, Toyota and a role similar to that, I think is probably the obvious.
there's been a lot made this week about how it's a reprise of the famous 1995 World Cup final between the two teams. Um, a lot, you know, there's been a lot of chat on both sides and and questions on that. The Springbok coach today was he was interesting on that game. He said that the match actually, you know, that we all remember as a classic and and one of the great World Cup finals had 80 kicks, a leather ball. The ball was in play 24 minutes. His quote was, there was literally no rugby and that the game is so much better now. Uh, you have um, rose-tinted glasses there, Julian. What, and, and, I mean, that, I assume, is one of your nine yeah. World Cup finals. Yeah, uh, yeah. What do you make of those statements? Yeah, oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, part of it, I agree with it, that the actual the actual game, 95, if you... So I was there and it was an amazing, incredible experience and you were able to grasp, anyone who was there was able to grasp the magnitude of what it meant and, you know, to see, to see Madiba come out in the, in uh, Pinwa's jersey was just like mind blowing. It was, you know, and, uh, and, and of course, like the, the, the greatest memory I have of that was when the plane flew over. So I was, I was watching it on a monitor mm-hmm. and it was up in the stands and just like watching, I was going, oh, look at that plane flying around over Johannesburg and whatever. And then I could just like hear it coming closer and closer. I hear this noise coming closer and we're quite, the, the press seats, um, for those of us, those of you who aren't in the press box, we don't get the prime seats. We're usually up in the nosebleeds, right? They are on halfway but they're, they're a long way up. So we're usually right up near the roof. And this thing came, I swear to God, it was coming straight at us. It was <laughs> so noisy. People were like like going under tables. It was it was frightening, unbelievable. So everyone had a great laugh when it flew over, but there was uh, it was a moment of terror. Um, it, was, uh, it was amazing. So their aviation laws are a little bit different from every other country. Uh, look, in terms of the match, look, obviously it was really exciting because of the, you know, 15-12, right? 15-12, go to extra time. I mean, it was a trialist game. I mean, South Africa didn't score a try until their third World Cup final. You know, they didn't, <laughs> score, right? they didn't score a try in that one. They didn't score a try in 2007, yeah, right? right? Yeah, and uh, they actually didn't score a try until the second half of the third World Cup I think I read today they haven't conceded one in a World Cup final either. That would be correct. That would be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, the game was dominated by kicking, but uh, and look, and, and for good reasons. I mean, the altitude there changes the dynamics because the ball just like when you kick it, the ball obviously goes really high, and when it bounces, it just bounces like twenty meters high. So it allows attacking teams to follow through, and you can just like nail your your wingers and everyone that you're going to get. So and obviously everything around that was all sort of designed to nullify the impact of Jonah alone. Jonah alone. Who, who didn't get a lot of ball and, you know, he made one or two breaks and, you know, used Ben de Vesse's and made this famous tackle on him and all that sort of thing. But going back um, to what Jacques said, uh, for him to say that um, that there was more kicking then for a team that just boots the ball every <laughs> time they get it. I mean, we joked, we we went to Moulin Rouge the other night, okay, and we watched the, we watched the camp oh, camp. oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, there were tickets to Moulin Rouge. Oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry, I didn't tell you about that either. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the can-can. And we was like, we couldn't work out if there's more kicks in the can-can than there is from the, from the bomb squad. So, uh, or, or the Poms. I mean, they just kicked everything last weekend. Look, you do what you have to win. I don't think we'll see New Zealand kick it as much this weekend, but South Africa are going to, they're going to kick it every time they get it. That'll be the fascinating thing. is to, And, and Fozzie even touched upon it tonight. They, they're very good at their style, how they play game and, and hopefully we'll play how we want to play and, and whether or not they're actually able to do that the weather uh, whether or not they get sucked into playing a different game because of the south africans or if they fall behind uh, that that's the intriguing aspect to me is whether or not new zealand is allowed to play the game that they want to because if they do i, I don't see how any team keeps up with the new zealanders when they do their short kicking game to win back possession uh, they've got threats across the park. That'll be the interesting one. And just a note on the weather, Julian walked over to our apartment from the train station today and he came in, he was drenched, wasn't he? So there's certainly it's been raining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 60% so, chance of rain, I reckon. <laughs> right, and it's been been around Paris all week, hasn't yeah, it? So, I'm, yeah, I'm back in the rain. But oh, I just think that's one, like Will Jordan shapes as a crucial um, figure for me in this game yeah. because, you know, obviously there's a lot of people sort of, Think he should be playing at fullback instead of playing at wing, but I actually think it works really well for the All Blacks having having him on the wing because he's going to have to field a lot of catches on the weekend, right? And when you've got someone who's a fullback, 
and who's good in the air like he is, mate, I, I think that gives him a significant advantage. And you know, and his ability with ball in hand is second to none. So he's going to hopefully break the world. He could break the record for the most tries in a World Cup and should have last week if Richie had just <laughs> flung the ball out one more time. Yeah, that kind of reminded me of uh, Christie not flinging the extra third ticket out when he had the chance. You know, how many how many times are you going to do this? <laughs> I've only given a thousand tickets away because you only love you only love football too, right? So you know, like it's not I like love, you would have appreciated it. Uh, yeah, I love I love football and I love clicks on the website. They're my two great loves, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get anyone to uh, get any ideas that we're all in the clicks business. <laughs> we're in the uh, business of reporting and speaking about rugby. And we'll be doing plenty more of that. We've got um, a combined team coming up that will be released on Saturday morning that we've got our experts and our editors have put together. So-called experts. Yeah, so-called experts, um, or so-called editor and our legitimate experts have put together this combined team of um, the All Blacks and Springboks going into the game. So plenty for people to argue about there. Indeed. The Rugby World Cup on the Roar. It's been a massive week of news leading up to this weekend's finals. We've had the racism allegations from Tom Curry that emerged during the uh, semi-final last week where he accused uh, Springboks hooker Bongi Mbiambi. Sorry, Harry Jones, I've absolutely... I think you did an all right job. An all right job? No, I've absolutely fouled that up. I've written it so many times this week, boys, that, uh, you know, I just, but I haven't said it out loud. But I think everyone knows who I mean. Um, the other word that's integral to this, I'm not even going to attempt to um, use on a, on a family podcast. Um, but Tom Curry has alleged that he was called uh, a white so-and-so by the South African player. It's also emerged that, he has claimed that he was called the same same um, slur back in 2022. And there's been so much um, amateur sleuthing going on from Springboks fans trying to decide what was actually said. World Rugby today came out with a statement. Uh, there's been plenty of statements today, but World Rugby said there was insufficient evidence to um, pursue anything further on this. South Africa has welcomed that statement and... Um, said that they have always denied that that it happened. Um, but England has, they've come out really strongly through the Rugby Football Union and through their coach, Steve Borthwick. And basically, Steve Borthwick described Curry as a victim um, who's been denied an opportunity to have his say. Whatever the truth of this is, there's been a lot of ugly abuse flying around, hasn't there? And we're, we're certainly seeing more and more of this. Hasn't been a very savoury incident. No, not at all. I, I think... The best thing is, is that there won't be an asterisk one way or the other around the result of this final. So if, if Bongi was to be rubbed out, if, uh, uh, or if there was, he was to be stood down as the investigation takes place, I think that would have been disappointing and unfortunate. Uh, fortunately, he's playing. We reported it, I think, first actually worldwide that he'd play after getting some intel earlier in the week. But the fact that... Oh, I, it's not going to mar the uh, the World Cup final, which I think is great. And yeah, there's been a fair bit of talk. It's dominated the news lines throughout the week. But come the final, you know, we won't be talking about it. There has been a lot of chat and uh, on our forums, but on social media as well, that the player involved should harden up and just accept that this is part of rugby. I, I just can't agree that this is where we want to go. I think no. that if I think someone needs to, and we've got to say that Curry didn't actually take this take this forward. He approached a referee during a match in the 23rd minute of a match that England were were leading and looked quite, you know, like they had a great chance of winning and brought it up to the ref at that moment. He obviously felt something had happened. Hmm. Um, it, it's just not acceptable, is it? No, no, it's not. I mean, that's a kind of a dinosaur idea that, um, you know, that um, what happens on the field stays on the field. I mean, it doesn't cut it anymore. Um, what happens on the field is reflective of the standards that are in society. I mean, you know, so you can't go and assault someone on a field, as you can't go and assault someone in, um, in a pub on a Friday night. But one thing that we do have to remember, and I applaud Tom Curry for coming forward, reminds me of David Pocock, I think, did it years ago, is that 
you still have to apply rule of law on this. And we have to be really, really careful about when it becomes a, um, when there's no um, evidence that can prove it with beyond the shadow of a doubt. I mean, you have yes. to apply the rule of law um, in that someone is technically innocent until until proven guilty. I, you can't condemn someone purely on someone else's word, I don't think. I, I think England's... I think England's complaint was that Curry was prepared to go and give his version of events to an independent panel, but he was not requested to. That they've that they've made a decision based on, you know, without talking to the player, without. Well, and that's really interesting because world rugby and everyone that plays the game, speaks about the game, is all about rugby and rugby's values. And does that show display the rugby values? Perhaps not. Um, uh, the point that you brought up just before about David Pocock, you know, we're, we're going back to Sydney, the Brumbies playing the Waratahs, and there was an incident with South African player Jacques Poitgeza who, who who said something he shouldn't have said, and it may be said in the amateur game and in different areas of society, but we've got to move beyond that point. And, and that was dealt with. Uh, there was a massive fine. He probably learnt from it. Well, he certainly says that he, he learnt from it. But... That was a, a moment in time which brought a, a, a crucial issue to a head in the game, and that was rugby values being shown there by the Brumbies at the time. I want to move on from there. There's been reports today that uh, one of the Wallabies, one of Eddie Jones' close allies with the Wallabies, Chris Webb, um, has uh, moved on. From... Well, it's not reports. It's fact. It's Sorry, true. it's fact, yeah. Has moved on from Rugby Australia. I guess tell me about chris webb why is this an important person in the wallaby setup who is he and how significant is this story well for two decades he's been you know at, at various points in times the general manager of the wallabies which is a uh, team manager um, head of a, a very kind of specialist sort of role around logistics but also high performance he's the high performance manager of the australian equestrian um, so he's a guy that knows the rugby landscape very well, dealings with both coaches, players, player agents. He was doing stuff with the contracts, was very influential with the contracts that, uh, that the Australian players and coaching staff uh, had signed over the last four years. And he came back after the World Cup in 2019, joined Dave Rennie's uh, team at the time. Uh, he and Dave Rennie would go during camps. They would be going up at 7 a.m. every morning having conversations. So when we talk about that he is an ally of Eddie Jones, he is because he worked with him back two decades ago when Eddie Jones was the coach then. But he also uh, was brought back by Rugby Australia under a Dave Rennie-led side or uh, working alongside that. So how big a deal it is, look, it's significant because he's a person with a lot of... Uh, intellect, uh, IP, knows the landscape very well. My understanding is that he had his own, he had his contract terminated. It wasn't necessarily a fact of him resigning. Um, that shows Rugby Australia perhaps a bit of accountability. Things didn't work out that well this year. Uh, it was quite messy, the campaign. Things were haphazard. Uh, and it's a fascinating development given the state of limbo that Eddie Jones is in. Julian, do we think that this is part of Rugby Australia's dance with Eddie Jones around trying to kind of extricate I've, each I've, other I've, from each No, I've given up. <laughs> I, I've given up. Right. I have given up trying to figure out um, where this is all going and what's all happening because there's a new twist and a new turn and a new theory and a new development every single day. And we're still at we're still at the stage where Eddie is still there. And yeah, we've already the seen the Eddie and, out. Eddie's and out. Said like so, um, you know, so I'm, yeah, so I, I've, I've, I've given up trying to figure out um, what it all means anymore. Um, and I think we've kind of all, I guess we've all got to be a little bit patient, which is something that we don't have <laughs> um, a lot of, and then see where this goes. I mean, we, we are all still under the assumption that Eddie is not going to be there when they kick off their first match next year, that, Something's going to happen in between, whether he goes to Japan or, or whatever. But it hasn't happened yet. And Rugby Australia, their their line every time is that um, they're sticking with him. And Eddie's line, I mean, he's looking at the cameras every single time and saying, I'm committed to Rugby Australia and staying there. So, yeah, good luck if, uh, if you figured it all out because uh, most of us are left guessing. 
it, it is true that Eddie Jones uh, frustrated that centralisation alignment hasn't come through. It is true that he was under the impression that there would be tens of millions of dollars, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars, come back in bef well before the 27 World Cup. That's not occurred. I think there is also avenues for both parties to, to split, to go, you know what, this isn't working out. So from both Eddie's perspective, RA's perspective, they wouldn't have to pay him out uh, the, the four or five million dollars that perhaps he would be uh, earn, earn if he was to stay there the whole time. One thing is for certain that RA, Rugby Australia, won't move on him before they know a bit more. So they're, they're waiting for Eddie Jones to play his next card uh, because uh, you know they, they have taken at his word, but also there's not another test match for eight nine months. There's going to be a review take place over the next month, and, and there's been a fair bit of talk over the last week around should RA go to J Jap the J Japanese Rugby Football Union and yes. ask around yeah. whether or not they should approach them and just ask what's the deal. I was told yesterday by a couple of very senior figures in international rugby, not part of Rugby Australia, that that would not happen because firstly, the relationships aren't there with Australia. Secondly, there's generally a bit of a, uh, an idea that you don't work in the same kind of region. And for you to do that, you would generally speaking go to, uh, if you were to try to headhunt someone from a different party, uh, that you, you might ask them beforehand and go, look, this might be at play. Would, how, you know, would that be an issue? And I mean, to flip that around, Rugby Australia apparently was speaking to Eddie for at least a year before totally. they appointed him. Did they ever ring up Twickenham and say, oh, by the way, we're chatting to your coach um, and yeah. seeing how that's and, progressing? And, and would they, would England have ever, the RFU ever gone to Rugby Australia and said that? And so, if they'd asked them, what response would they have received? Well, the, the clear difference here, though. business. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that is a big thing, and mind your own business. But the, the massive difference there is that Eddie was always going to finish up at the RFU as English coach at the end of 23. and. The Wallabies were looking at appointing him for 24 and beyond, not necessarily 23. So, yeah, it's it's a fascinating space. We've got to keep to watch it. But I agree, a bit of patience in the 24-7 news cycle. There's not generally much of that. Rugby Australia's uh, boss, um, Hamish McLennan, was also deeply involved in the uh, initiative you mentioned earlier, Christy, the Nations Championship, which will see the teams from the Six Nations plus the Rugby Championship plus two uh, invited teams believed at this stage to be Japan and probably Fiji into a competition from uh, 2026. That's going to lock out tier two, uh, other tier two nations because Fiji has that classification at the moment um, until 2032. So 2030, they'll start playing and there'll be relegation at the end of that. So 2032 is the first time that teams from outside that will be allowed back to play against those sides. We've seen a bit of pushback from uh, Tonga and and senior players in fr from Samoa. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that you feel that this is a, a good thing or an important step for the game? Oh, I think ultimately uh, the idea of the nation championship at, at its core is a good one. I think uh, having tests of significance, meaning that will be able to generate more money, is a good thing. Uh, I think fans will be able to get around it. There'll be a final at the end of it. I know Julian Linden loves the idea of playing a World Cup every two years. Here you go. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring that up. I'm going to bring that up. But you have, you have the idea of having the best 12 sides. Yeah. They play five matches throughout, uh, three in the July test window, two at the November window, uh, and a final is played between the two sides that pop the respective, uh, top the respective pools. I think that's something that's attractive to, to most parties. Promotion relegation... I think should have been brought in at, at 26 right from the outset. And that would have been able to uh, appease most. It would have been scary for the Wallabies too, right? Oh, totally. You know, who are ninth at the moment, had dropped tenth. to 10th. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's it's obviously it's rocked the boat. But for, you know, World Rugby's been trying to do something like this for a long, long time. This doesn't come out of thin air. We've, we've known about it for a long time. What World Rugby has promised, and this is – a promise at the moment, it's not set in stone, is that there'll be a 50% increase of matches um, from Tier 1 and Tier 2 uh, in the years either side of that. 
So British and Irish Lions years, World Cup years. Look, we don't know what dealings have been done, but it's interesting to me that uh, reports are that Samoa and Georgia both voted for this, even though they're, uh, some of their players are upset about them being locked out. So hopefully part of this is that there are guarantees or suggestions of guarantees of matches against Tier 1 nations. But we've seen some really strong opposition to this. Um, Julian, what are your thoughts on... Yeah, okay. So I've always been in favour of having uh, something else filling in the gap in between the four years. Mm -hmm. And the Nations Cup, if that's the way they've chosen to be, I think it's better than nothing. But I think it's the wrong tournament, the wrong format. I don't like it, um, to be honest. I think it's just a glorified whole bunch of Northern Hemisphere tours where the rich boys all just keep playing each other. I think they've missed two opportunities here. One, now I know that no one really agrees with me, but I have met some people, well, Christy doesn't, <laughs> but I have met some people in pubs, admittedly, late yeah. at night. I, I honestly believe this. Okay, I think the World Cup should be held every two years. Now, bear with me on this. So I know that the, the people think that uh, you kill the golden goose if you go. Pretty much every sport in the world has moved to a two-year cycle. So even the Olympics has its Winter Olympics and its Summer Olympics, it's two years. World Athletics, World Swimming, Everything is on a two-year cycle. Ryder Cup is on a two-year cycle. No one has a four-year cycle anymore. FIFA World Cup is on a four-year cycle, but that's because they've got European Championships, which but, is a mate, big this is thing exactly it, though. Right? This is a Nations so, Cup. With so, the top but it tour. doesn't do that. Nations Cup. So, now you're going to have to wait on this because you gave the ticket away to Tony the other night, which you should, you should have given the soccer <laughs> ticket. So, you're losing as well. <laughs> For me, this World Cup, every time I go, when I was in St. Etienne, there were 80 Canadians staying in my hotel, okay? Yeah. When I was in Lyon, there were, I, I met hundreds and hundreds of Americans who were saying, every time you go to a game, there are Japanese fans everywhere. The Rugby World Cup is the best thing that rugby has going for it. It makes a mozza. They're expanding to 24 teams. People come from all over the world. People absolutely love it. We're going to see an incredible blockbuster game. And then they get it, and then they go and park the, the park Rolls Royce in the garage and wait four more years. But they miss out on doing that. Now, if they don't, so I would have another tournament in the two year in between. If you don't want to give it, call it World Cup, give it another name like cricket does with its Champions Trophy or whatever, right? And I would be taking that as a standoff tournament to developing slash emerging countries that never get a chance at hosting the World Cup. South Africa haven't held the World Cup since 1995. When are they going to get it again? Never. Right? New Zealand, when will they seriously ever get to host the World Cup again? Economics. Why hasn't Argentina been given a chance? Why aren't we going to Spain and Portugal, Italy to, for places like that? I'd be so going I there. Would, yeah, it'd yeah. be great. So yeah. I would be finding a way, I would be finding a way, instead of having this Nations Cup, which is just, again, a glorified branding of the, the, the end of season tour, I'd have a tournament in a new country every two years, call it the Champions Trophy, call it the Rugby Challenge Cup or whatever it was. And also I would I would do things that they've talked about and people would like to see, but they haven't. I'd have two divisions. Okay. Well, why are we hooked on this thing? Yeah, I, I think I'm that split. makes sense. They've I'm gone to 24. Well, they maybe yeah. use that as a qualifier well, for the main World yeah. Cup or yeah. whatever. But so they, they, think are, outside they, the square. they are going to have a second division of this tier two uh, take, take place. So... I, what, I, what I would be doing Who's is having, be watching it though? But what I would be doing is having the finals of both divisions same weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday night. But they're not going to do that. All they're going to try to do is get as much money out of Twickenham, hoping that it's like England and the All Blacks. It's just going to be the same. Sure, but if it's England and the All Blacks and the night before, it can be Uruguay and 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 Portugal because how good were they throughout this year? Uh, it's an interesting one. Like even Todd Ikepa has said, look, there's going to be more matches. They're going to play more matches going forward. There's a Pacific Nations Cup. Uh, but he... Like that? That's fine. Pacific Nations Cup, good good event for them going forward, yep. Yeah. So at least I think there has been progress. We know that it is slow moving, generally speaking, with world rugby. Slow so moving. It's the most conservative sport. This was a game that was in the Olympics 100 years ago. Well, 1908 rugby was in the Olympics. And they, they, it took them until 1995 to go professional. You know, it's the slowest moving sport of all. They're so conservative in their thinking in the way they go about. You look at every other sport in the world is growing and expanding. Do you think Formula One sits down there and say, you know what, we should, we should go back to the old days where we had 12 races in Europe and one in South America, <laughs> right? No, they're having races everywhere. They're having night races, sprint races, 
three races in North America. They're going to the Middle East. They're going everywhere they can. You know, you look at you look at tennis. You look at golf. You look at you know Infantino and what they've how they've grown women's football and European Champions League. Remember Champions League. You, you know, yeah. if someone went back and said, should we go back to the old thing where yeah. it's just only the like, winners? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, you know, cup winners, cup. Should yeah. we go back to that? Well, no way. Yeah. Rugby is too slow in reacting and changing the game. They need to get ahead of the ball game because I guarantee you in 100 years' time, we will not be having a World Cup every four years. Would you have the Super Bowl every four well, years? Okay, well, Would you I have can the say Masters every four years? I can guarantee you won't be here in 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, that's a hundred years of not listening to Julian's argument about uh, twice a year um, a World Cup every two years. But that's the first time I've heard it sober, and it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> the Rugby World Cup on the Roar. We've been talking about the elites of rugby, and um, you know the big events. Uh, Christy Doran will be at the World Rugby Awards on Sunday night, wearing a tie. And his uh, fresh new haircut. If I can get it back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's gone somewhere as well. Sorry, Here we man. go. <laughs> uh, you just shut me out of everything, right. you boys. Yeah. So, on that, any uh, link to the third ticket? That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so, there is one Australian involved in that. Congratulations to Maddie Levi, yeah. uh, the uh, women's sevens player who stormed it up with fifty-seven tries. I think it was in seven matches on the world tour, which is a record for a season on the world tour so well done she's one of the four nominees in that category in the world player of the year for the men so i'll just mention that the women's player of the year awards have been withheld until after the current um competition the uh wx uh v yes world 15 i assume uh that's ongoing in new zealand at the moment so that leaves us with four contenders uh none of whom unsurprisingly are wallabies uh we have Artie Sevilla. Antoine Dupont, Evan Etzebeth, and Bundy Aki. Uh, Jules, out of that lot, who would get your vote? Well, as a old halfback, mm. uh, former halfback, uh, I have to go Dupont. Uh, I hope he's not penalised for his team being not going further in, in, in the World Cup. Certainly wasn't. But he missed a bunch of it as well, right? Yeah, yeah, he missed a bunch of it as well. But, you know, it goes for, you know, they call it player of the year, not player of the tournament. Right. Okay, and for me, he's been the most influential player in the of, of the last year. Okay, what he's done for the French rugby team has uh, been phenomenal. Um, and I think, it, it, not that this should be a, I don't know how defining this is, but I think off the field, he's been really great for the game as well. Um, he's, you know, he's been the face of this tournament um, for a long time. I think he's been great. So he gets my vote. A bit of a swollen face of the tournament. Yeah, yeah, battered and uh, whatever. But yeah, look, he, he gets it for me. Uh, I think it's Artie. This party with Artie. Yeah. I, I just he, he probably should have got it a couple of years ago. He's immense. And I, I can appreciate DuPont. He was unbelievable. Best character player in the game for that first 40 minutes between France and South Africa. But that last 20 minutes, the shape went out of it slightly. I go back to even Ireland uh, in the Six Nations, and DuPont was incredible too. They lost... Um, I just think that Sevilla and the impact he has on both sides of the ball, uh, he's superb, best back rower in the world at the moment. Uh, and I think he will lead and help the All Blacks to, to World Cup victory, which, let's be honest, does generally play a part. Etzebeth's been great. What a moment he did. Uh, legal or illegal, uh, huge, the huge moment in, in that in that uh, victory over France. Um, yeah, I'd go Sevilla. I think, um, I don't know if it's too late or whether they've decided this already, but I think out of those two, um, Etzebeth or Sevilla, whichever team actually lifts the trophy, I think that would be a, a fair representation for that player to... It's a funny one, though, isn't it? You can, can you be a well, world player? Well, if one off after one minute, the other bloke scores two tries and makes 25 tackles. So... <laughs> Before we, we pass. It's a very good point, yeah, mate. Yeah, it's a very yeah. good point. That's why they have player of the match, right? It's and player of the year. And he's got to wait four more years before he gets another <laughs> chance, too. But before we move on, I think the other one we should touch on is, is coach of the year. Right. So I think that'll be fascinating because we know what Fiji has done. Uh, they haven't progressed through the semi finals, but the friend few, of the Raw? Absolute friend of the Raw. All around. Fantastic person. He would give up his tickets. Um, <laughs> Andy Farrell, Ian Foster, Jacques Nienerber, and Simon Rawa-Louis. 
I think that's even more fascinating about this one. Who would you go? Simon. But, I mean, I've got a soft spot for Simon. Although, actually, to be honest... I, I, I have a different one. Yeah. I think Simon Rowley has done an incredible job, uh, led Fiji to victory over England at Twickenham, their first there. Wow. Uh, clearly an unbelievable 69-year uh, drought-breaking victory over the Wallabies in the World Cup, which ultimately led them to the quarterfinals. But I would go... If the All Blacks can win, I would go Ian Foster. And I hate to say it because I'm not a huge Fozzie fan, but I think the fact that they've managed to turn it around in in such stunning fashion this year against all the adversity, fair play. I'd probably go Fozzie as well, but and if but if I didn't, I'd go Andy Farrell. They won record number of matches this 17. year. They got a yeah, 17. Um what they did was phenomenal, and how they played was phenomenal. But, but and he, how unlucky were they as well? He got—correct me if I'm wrong. Was Andy Farrell uh, well coach of the year last year? He may have because he led them to to victory uh, down in New Zealand. I think he did. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, it would have been between him and and, and Fabian Gauti. Um Hard to go back to back when you're out in the quarters again. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, one game. You know, and it was a game where they where they had you know it was a thirty seven phases at the end there, which and if they if they if they pinch a try at the, the end, um, you know, it's um, all a series of one final. games though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, yeah. let us know yeah. out there in the podcast world, those that are listening this far, let us know what you think. I'll go I think Fozzie, it's an interesting. Though. All right, Fozzie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go. I'll go. Fozzie won the rugby championship, and if he wins the World Cup, then... there'll never be a happier man mowing his lawn than <laughs> Ian Foster if he has the World Cup. And World Coach of the Year in his back pocket. And, uh, you know, after all he's been through, he talked today about how he's just managed to straighten his shoulders up after being hunched over and he was being asked about what a tough year he had. Um, I don't know. You kind of feel for him and you kind of applaud how he's... I don't, he's I don't feel that. for him. I think he, he even admitted it's the business that they work in. Yeah. There's great highs, great lows. They're remunerated very, very well. Yeah. That, travel around like they're staying in a 17th century mm. um, place at the moment there in the west of Paris. Did you get frisked when you went in there? Because Actually, the worst security that there's been in France, <laughs> right. I'll tell you that. But the horse stables there were from King Louis and right. it's just amazing. They're right on a, a horse track there. There's tennis courts, undercover tennis courts. It's a superb setup that they've got there. Love, love it. Um, so that brings me to your prediction. Will Fozzie and his team get across the line, or is it one for the Rassi and Jacques show? What's what, what do you think? I'm going to do a quick short board to, to to Julian Linden as I prep my answer. Really, you're going to school on his? Okay, I'm going to go All Blacks by six points. And any I think they're going to. I think they. I think the Springboks are going to rely on most of their points. The, the, the thing that worries me with the Spring box is if they try to do something a little left field and they try to do a yarning to beer, okay? Whether they just go and go field goal, field goal, field goal, field goal like as, as the South Africans did in 1999 and just like that could rattle the New Zealanders. I think they get I think they've got possibly one try in them at most but we, we spoke before about how they didn't score a try in their first two World Cup finals I think the All Blacks have got more firepower if they can get they can get 50% of possession. I think the All Blacks will score two tries. So I'm going to go All Blacks by six. Yeah, and that's the, the really interesting one. Against Ireland, they struggled for points. They struggled for execution. Against <clears throat> France, they got their tries off counter attack, off turnover ball, off a bloke who couldn't catch a thing. And, and New Zealand will be able to catch the ball. There's no doubt about that, I think. So you're a great point. Can they score points? Only off the boot, I think, at the moment. And they've picked a team that will... Who, that would do that. Like Marnie Leboc is probably a more attacking, gifted player than Andre Pollard is, sure. uh, who's all about structure, kicking, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm saying New Zealand, uh, I think that they will win too. And I can just see that Will Jordan magic, everything that he touches turns to gold. I think he will score the match-winning try. The match-winning try. I see the All Blacks as well. And I think the difference here is that they've had an extra day rest and that they also played a far easier game. They were able to get some of their hard players off, uh, I guess, um, or some of their you know older players off the field. As we all remember, they actually finished the game last week with 14. They did it that easily. They could afford not to send Scott Barrett on. I just think that extra break and the... Um, 
you know, the ability to, they, they, I don't think they've got the same miles in the legs. And I think going to the well twice for the Springboks, winning by a point two weeks in a row, I think that might count against them. My last comment for the night, Sam Whitelock. He's been such, oh. such a pillar of strength for New Zealand rugby for so long, Crusaders and the All Blacks. And the fact that he comes off the bench, He's such a stabilising, calm influence on that entire team. And the South Africans are pulling off an even Etzebeth. Now, I think that's a really interesting one, how that'll play out there. What a phenomenal achievement, though, if he wins. He'll, He'll be, be the, the first. only player to win three World yeah. Cups. So I think there's only 21 full stop who have won two. And a lot of them are all blacks who went back-to-back. Mm-hmm. And Timmy Horan. Um, yeah, well, Timmy Horan and then Kernsey and, and a few of our guys. Um from 91 and 99, and there was a couple of South Africans, Oz Durant, and I think Francois Stein with the 2007-2019. But to win three, phenomenal. Like, it's so hard just to make to make a World Cup final or to make an all-blacks team. To win three World Cups, unbelievable. Even Richie McCaws, you know, that's above anything he's done. And uh, Christy Doran, you're on debut this weekend. I've had, uh, this will be my third World Cup final. Julian, we uh, worked out earlier, is coming up for number nine. This is your first, yeah? It's exciting. Oh, and, and we've been gifted at the Raw to be here. And, and yourself and me, we've been here for quite a while now. <laughs> and, and, and I think anyone that's listening to this far through the podcast, I hope that you've been able to enjoy, get a, a real balance of coverage on the Raw. And it's great that, that a company like ours has, has backed us to be here because you look at a lot of the networks uh, across Australia, particularly once the Wallabies were out, so were they. And, uh, that's a testament to the rule that we're still here. You know, I think that, you know, the rugby gods have got a very wicked sense of humour because uh, throughout this whole tournament, they've been breaking everybody's hearts. They broke the Wallabies' hearts, <laughs> right? They broke Fiji's hearts, you know. Teams like Portugal broke their hearts, had a few unlucky, broke the Irish hearts, broke the French, and they've been breaking everyone's hearts. But they finally shown that they do have a heart because they have delivered the best final that we could have. This This is... This is rugby's greatest final. It's a, it's going to be an epic occasion. It's going to be terrific. Uh, the sofa bed broke my heart. And you two the other night. <laughs> Catch you soon, guys. Thanks for listening.